head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Bonjour! Je m'appelle Chris Ryan! This is the Watch Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at ringer.com, and I'm joined today by Andy Greenwald. What's up? Chris, I think I speak for all of our listeners when I say... That's the, that's the French national anthem, in case it's not coming through. Do we have to pay copyright for that, or is that is that fair use? It's a national anthem. I figured. I figured. Uh, today, Andy and I have a special episode. We're going to have a series of special episodes where we talk about a show that's really been a revelation for us, a show that's really been a source of great, great joy for us. It's Le Bureau, or The Bureau in English, which I think we're going to be sticking to a lot of like the English pronunciations and English translation of the show. Are we? Or are we? Are we, with, are we sure about that? With Pepe Le Pew over here. Maybe um, Vu is sure about that, but moi, I'm not so sure. So what we're going to do is we've been talking about this for a little while on the Watch Pod, on the Mothership. So we're going to make a couple of special episodes where we cover... Two seasons at a shot. Uh, the first two seasons will be in this episode. Then we're going to do seasons three and four in an additional episode. And then I think what we'll do is season five. And, you know, maybe we'll get a guest or maybe we'll, ha- we'll do some sort of mailbag or something. Um, and, I, and I think ground rules for people listening, two things. Yes. We will not speak about any events that happen on this podcast, any events that happen after the season two finale. So you, if you have only watched two seasons, you are safe to keep listening right now. If you have not listened to the first two seasons, this is a very weird way to engage with art. I respect you. <laughs> That's why we're putting know. this on a separate a separate show, right? Because like, I think that this is a very specific experience. But just in case we have special fans, um, you should know that the biggest barrier to joining us on this uh, bon journey, good journey, right, Chris, is how do we watch this show? And we should just yes. say right off the bat, this show is available to American viewers on AMC Plus, which you can get. I, we've earned it this time. <laughs> um, which you can subscribe to separately through your, whatever your your entry point into the world of streaming television is through your Apple TV. Um, you can uh-huh. also add it to your Amazon Prime subscription. Either way, it's going to cost you a little extra money per month, a couple extra euros. It's worth it. What in life that's really great is actually free. You know what I mean? 
And other than this podcast? <laughs> other than this podcast. So, uh-huh. Andy, why don't we start Broad Strokes? So, The Bureau is a show that aired from 2015 to 2020 on Canal Plus, uh, which is the the, the original which, Plus. The Plus that gave us, us Disney Plus, that gave us Paramount Plus, Canal Plus in France. It is, broadly speaking, and very specifically, uh, it's, it's a spy show. It is a show about a group, uh, a desk within the DGSE, which is essentially the French CIA. It's a very small office, very few characters, I, I would say, uh, about half a dozen main characters. And the show essentially tracks multiple storylines over the course of these seasons as these agents and analysts and you know technical supervisors and uh, sort of executive level guys move through uh, the world of largely like for the most part Middle Eastern geopolitics and um, all of the sort of players on the board in that area. So while at least for the first two seasons, a lot of the action is confined to Paris, to uh, Algiers, to um, Iran and Syria. So that's where and, and Iraq and a couple of other places. And I think that one of the true marvels of the show, one of the reasons why Chris and I have fallen completely head over heels for it is that it is at once the most complex and exhilarating Lacare-esque depiction of modern spycraft that we've seen. And people know this is this is catnip to us. This is what we love. But the construction of the show is deeply ingenious in that it is also, on a very basic level, a love story. And it tells you that right from jump, and it follows it all the way through. And so we get to watch in real time as characters whose entire lives are monuments to control and intelligence, broadly speaking, are undone by, I mean, I wish I could say this in French, the vagaries of the human heart. It's right. it, It is a triumph of TV storytelling on any number of levels, but probably the broadest way to say it is it manages to consolidate all those different levels of TV storytelling. It works episodically. It works season-wise. It works thematically. It works granularly in terms of how things get done and process, but it, it is also ultimately surprisingly emotional. I think the thing that I responded to immediately with this, and this is where I kind of wanted to start, we can talk very, and let's keep this really general, is it at once felt very familiar, both in terms of like what it was about. Obviously, you and I have read a ton of spy novels and, and watched a lot of uh, spy films and spy spy television. So it there were themes, there were conceits that I thought were really familiar. But there was something in the telling of the show that I found, if not foreign, um, different, you know? And I, when I say foreign, I mean, maybe it had a European sensibility. But I think especially over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, we've watched these television kind of blossom as an art form, at least in terms of its mainstream appreciation as an art form. Obviously, there was great television before The Wire and The Sopranos and Mad Men. But I think what happened when those shows emerged was there was also this emergence of a critical industrial complex to appreciate it in a certain way. Um, we are th- we are the proud beneficiaries. And we are the proud beneficiaries of said complex. Some but of that state. I think that the thing that I, I responded to in the Bureau, when you talk about the love story, is just how different it felt than a lot of those shows. How unencumbered by certain 
psychological motivations that I think are are usually at the heart of a lot of um, TV shows that we respond to, whether it's The Sopranos or Mad Men or Breaking Bad, about why somebody does what they do, mm-hmm. what is the motivating characteristic. And then a lot of also, I think, when it comes to like especially American spy television, sort of overwrought notions of patriotism and duty. Yep. That are kind of absent from this show in a way that feels it makes very heavy material and very dense material feel a lot lighter and a lot more easy to navigate because you're not also being weighed down by I don't know, what is it? Drudgery? Is it is it a kind of like um emotional baggage that gets attached to characters unnecessarily? I think it's a great observation. I think there's two answers for it. One is the show is deeply French. And I say sure. that with 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 love. And one of the things that, that or I that, Amour. Yeah. Look at you. Look at you. <laughs> I promise okay. we should, we promise we won't break down every five seconds to drop I, whatever we excited. remember from eighth grade French. <laughs> I want to give you a bisou. One on each cheek. Um what you're talking about, and I, I should say this from the from jump, it is very easy to when you're talking about Le Bureau to compare it often very favorably to Homeland. And Homeland is a show that you and I had a lot of time for at certain times in its run, and I think ultimately was a very admirable and successful show made by well-intentioned, smart people and entertained millions. Um, So it's not really a fair comparison to make their projects were different. But one of the things that I think does trip up intelligence shows that veer into militaristic themes or global themes in this era is that if you are an American show with an American perspective, you kind of have to deal with everything that means. And often, you know, on a very basic level, that means just being one of the elephants in the room, the biggest power and the push pull nature of making that power all good or all bad, um, depending on the circumstance. France is not that. And one of the things that I love about the show is that the French secret service is basically stuck in the middle of a lot of these people. The Americans play heavily, the Russians show up, all the various Middle Eastern countries are obviously in the mix. And there's something that is kind of freeing to be joining the, I, I'm sorry, that now I'm veering into your territory, but joining the Premier League, so to speak, <laughs> but being what, like Swansea, right? Like Crystal yeah. Palace? Like you're mid, not necessarily- mid-table. France's Secret Service is mid-table, I would say. Absolutely. And so their they motivations- They don't have like the sort of like regal historical quality of the British Secret Service. You know, they don't have the the big big pockets of the CIA or the Russians maybe, but- they're they're in the middle somewhere. They're West Ham, and they're not they're not likely to be relegated due to historical uh, <laughs> achievement. Yes, so they're there. They're in the mix. And one of the fun things, I mean, the show doesn't indulge a lot. I think it's one of the things that I appreciate. But there are moments when you get into the crisis room. By the way, how could we not love a show that features so literally r- crisis rooms, um, where the French side gets to sit across the table from the Americans, the English, whomever. And just and just be just dunk all over them and basically mm-hmm. be like, you guys are all morons and you suck. So I it does veer into that level of nationalism occasionally, but it's it's earned. And I think that but coming at things mid-table, as you said, gives us a different perspective on on the global order. The yeah. other part of it, I think, in terms of the emotional baggage and storytelling, comes from the genesis of the show. I don't know if it's necessarily European and French, although you know, the creators are, and so their point storytelling points of view, that's what they are, and they would admit it. The show was created by Eric Rochant, who is mm-hmm. a French filmmaker. He's just, I think he's 60 years old this year. So he was in his mid-50s when he created it. He was of the generation, because in France, they still do stuff like this, when they like group directors and creators together yeah. with, like, with their school chums, with uh, Jacques Audiard, who will come into this conversation later when we get to the final season, but is widely considered to be one of, if not the greatest French directors of his 
era. And uh, Roshan made some movies and has worked steadily, but didn't and did, have the and same... And the, the work he did previous to the Bureau did have some connective tissue to the kinds of uh, stuff mm-hmm. that's in the Bureau. So he did a, a movie about the Mossad. He did a movie about mm-hmm. uh, like a Russian spy with Jean Dujardin, who was in The Artist. Uh, he did a series about, I think, the Corsican Mafia. Mafia, right? yeah. Yeah. So, so the, he, he had some... Systems. Yeah, he has like a degree of facility with this, this underworld. But to, to do what we, I guess, what we often do on the podcast and give you the, the larger meta context for the show, the show is born of Canal Plus. You know we're going to say it a lot. Looking at the landscape and realizing what Netflix was doing, what Apple and Amazon were likely to do, which was basically to take over the television industries in most of the countries of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, just be like, you guys haven't done what we've done in America. We can do that for you and make shows like, Lupin, for example, a French show that immediately becomes a global hit. So in order to at least head off some of that attrition, they went, Canal Plus went to Eric Roshan and was like, give us a prestige show, like create something for us. And he is a, with, you know, with all the best strings attached, a French filmmaker. And so he went into this, not with the perspective of an American showrunner who is about to face a gauntlet of notes from a studio or from a network. What that allowed him to do I mean, it's a very high level of difficulty, and he did it. What it allowed him to do was create a show that in the beginning episode is all loose threads. You know, we don't see... So Guillaume de Bailly, played by Matthew Kasovitz, who we're going to talk about, is our Carrie Matheson. He's our main character. He's also an almost unreadable asshole for pretty much the run of the show. Mm-hmm. And there is no, there was no need. There was no, there was no moment. There were no notes from a network being like, can we just see him listening to jazz a little bit? Can we understand this guy better? Or can we make him twitchier or can we give him a a drinking problem or a Coke problem Mm -hmm. or like a dad weakness? Yeah. Like something where it's just like, this is the, the original wound that sent him down this road, but also exemplifies his brilliance. And yes, as one of the things that's incredible about the show is, uh, Malatru, Debaye, Lefebvre, all the same person, returning to Paris is an inciting incident for Mm -hmm. a lot of craziness. That said, we kind of join the French Secret Service in media res, right? There are agents in the field. There's trainings happening. There are people who we might not even register upon first viewing who will become absolutely beloved characters in six to eight episodes time. And you don't feel the heavy thumb of a nervous creator or an anxious network being like, Make, make us love him a little more now so people stick around. There's none of that. So it is really exhilarating for us as fans of French cinema and or risk-taking adult-driven TV that Well, we talk about that a lot and people. we don't always explain what we mean. I think to me when we say like stuff that's made for adults, um, mm-hmm. it's essentially not insulting the intelligence of your audience and not underestimating what they need to care about a story. And this is what you're talking about with these loose threads. I would say that at least in the first two seasons, cumulatively, whatever is taking place in these countries, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Algeria, wherever, what, what, like all the stuff that we're seeing, what would it be? Like three inches at the bottom of an International Herald Tribune article? Like what, <laughs> what we don't, this is not about like, there is a bomb in the Hoover Dam and Jack Bauer must get there. Right. There is a uh, heralded 
you know, military, like soldier who's returned home, but turns out he is a double agent, you know, that only Carrie Matheson knows the truth. It's, it's not about these sort of big gestures, big swings. There is no like, if this doesn't happen, the tower will fall or whatever. It's all like a game of inches. And in the same way, the show preaches patience. Like when you're watching it, yeah, there are moments that feel incredibly important, but what you're really getting is these incremental sort of moves forward and backwards, these parries in like a fencing match where these characters are essentially moving the ball two yards, losing two yards, moving the ball three yards, losing five yards. Mm-hmm. And it's that's what intelligence work is. It is, it is not necessarily shaping the world. It's really observing it. And then as these people get pulled into these kind of dramas, obviously... very dramatic things happen in the show. And like you said in the beginning, it's essentially driven by this love story between Guillaume and Nadia Almansor, who's a a Syrian scholar who gets pulled into the world of like what a post-Assad world like Syria would look like. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings me to the other point that I wanted to talk about in the sort of broader spectrum. I think sometimes people get a little bit... um, they have a little trepidation going into spy stories or maybe get a little bored during spy stories because of the amount of information that's being thrown at them. Because you not only are trying to follow the story that's going on on screen, but you're trying to understand, well, is this film taking place in quote unquote, the real world? You know, Mm -hmm. is this, is this film being ripped from the headlines or is it like an alternate history or is it, is it maybe even depicting a certain moral or ethical or national point of view in its storytelling. I think that, for instance, Zero Dark Thirty, obviously, (laughs) could be called guilty of that. I think that the Bureau has an incredible sense of history in a very subtle way. Like, obviously, France's role as a colonial power Mm -hmm. uh, is very much at the center of the story. But its sense of the present is very fluid. And I don't think that it's about France's role in the war on terror. It's about these people and their relationships to one another. And that stuff is secondary. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Yeah, I think, and I think that's, that's of a piece with what you were, what you were just saying. The people on this show are essentially fanatics in a way work, certainly workaholics who are devoting their lives to work that no one will ever know about, especially if they're successful, that the risks they take, and the chances that they take and the lengths they go to are by nature forbidden for anyone ever to hear about, including people in their lives. That's pretty heavy. And so why you do it is for the the love or at least the respect of those who you are doing it with. It is incredibly personal work, though it is happening, as you said, on a global stage. And I think that one of the things that is was so powerful and bracing for me especially in the first two seasons. And, you know, I think this sh- even after, actually, even after the first season, the aperture gets a little wider. The stakes do feel a little bit heavier. I think the filmmaking changes a little bit. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It, but sometimes there's just more violence on screen, for example, mm-hmm. as the series goes on. In the first season, everyone is acting like all the houses are on fire all the time. And it, it, at the beginning, it's a little confusing. I mean, they're not letting on because they're, you know, they're, Secret Service trained agents, so they're acting like everything's fine, but you get the sense that the stakes could not be higher. And yet I don't think a gunshot goes off until it's over satellite phone imagery in episode nine mm-hmm. or episode 10. It 
requires it's not it required a whole rewiring i think of our brain what stakes mean what this all what this stuff is for you know because this this season is such this it's an incredible dance where the pressure goes up and up so you do feel to some degree like the frog in the cauldron that gets in and thinks it's just lukewarm water and then doesn't realize he's boiling to death but I apologize to my French friends who may think that I was using a disparaging term for the French in that analogy. Uh, frog legs are also delicious. So there's a lot at play here. But you, you have that feeling going throughout. It's a tribute to the filmmaking and the, and the, and the writing. But there's also a lot of dancing. There's, there's like jabs and feints. As you were saying, three steps forward, two steps back. You're not really sure what's going to happen. And just when you think something catastrophic is going to happen, six men get in a room and work it out. Mm-hmm. And it does keep you laser focused on, as you said, these particular people's role in it. Because what else is there for them to hang on to, and and for us to hang on to? And and, and before we get we get into it, I was trying to th- specifically, and how the episodes unfold, I was trying to figure out what it is that is so compelling and uh, enveloping about an espionage show versus a different kind of show for yeah, us sure. or, or, sure. or for the viewer. And I was thinking about it in terms of. This show in particular has endless mysteries right from the start. We don't know who to trust, what to believe, what's going on. And so, but a lot of shows are like that. I mean, back on the on the main feed at the moment, we're talking about Mayor of Easttown, for example, on, on HBO. And it's a murder mystery, and we love shows like that too. But if you think about it kind of from 10,000 feet, murder mysteries in our culture are, one of the reasons why they're so popular is because in a way they're in, in, an effort or an attempt to restore order, to put control back on something. Mm-hmm. Because in a murder mystery, a murder happens, it's unthinkable, it's impossible, it might appear unsolvable. How could this happen? And it creates this kind of emotional turmoil. And then a character, whether it's Sherlock Holmes or Kate Winslet saying Hoagie, is put into the narrative and finds out what happened. Mm-hmm. And by piecing it back together, they put sanity, they put order back in its place on the mantle. And then the show ends. And it give, leaves you with an illusion of, well, that won't happen again. <laughs> Maybe there's a second season where it does happen again, right? But what's happening here on a show like Le Bureau is kind of like an existential uncertainty, which is deeply unsettling in a different way. Because in the beginning of this show, literally from the pilot, no one knows anything. It's not just that they don't understand why Cyclone, who is the DGSA agent in Algiers who is arrested and then goes missing in the pilot. They don't mm-hmm. know. It's not just that they don't know why he's vanished. They have no idea what happened. The show demonstrates some of it. Like we see him appearing to be drunk and taken into a car. But then every question they ask leads to another question. And that level of uh, unknown is existential. And so everybody in this show, their whole job is just like bring order to disorder, whether it's in their lives or whether it's thousands of miles away in Algeria, hundreds of miles away, sorry. Still thinking kind of America first mindset, guys. Apologies. <laughs> but like everything about this is just, I, I keep saying the word existential, but that's what's so appealing to me about it. I mean, it's the intelligent service. The name of the show, full name of the show, translated to English is The Office of Legends. I mean, these are people who go to the extent of creating lockers mm-hmm. for fictional identities that they have just to maintain some semblance of control, you know? Right. And, and, and the show is built around a character of, of Guillaume who is the greatest there is at this. And and I want to- Is he? I, I mean, well, I think he's very good, but he's like- He's presented I think to us as the greatest. I, but see, the thing is, it's not, he's not presented to us the way that Don Draper is presented to us as a guy who can take down six martinis, 
have a fight with his wife. Right. And then at the last second, when everybody thinks he's going to be late for the meeting, walks in and does does the the Kodak presentation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I don't think that Guillaume Paul Maltru is necessarily presented as a one of one. I think he is very good at what he does. But I think even immediately as he shows up in the first season, he's pretty much already being suspected by his boss, Henri Duflo, who we'll talk about a lot, as maybe having other motivations, as is, you know, and and he's also being suspected by the therapist who is inexplicably tasked with asking deeply probing questions of all of the office, played by uh, Leah Drucker, Dr. Balmez, who is basically going around and kind of having these formal informal chats with the members of the DGSE about why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing what they're doing. In a way, it might be the most American convention of it all, of all of it. Yeah, she's the Dr. Melfi. Doubt, yeah. Not just about her, that they have, um, that there are these doubts about Guillaume, but also Henri and everyone is just like, but I need him because yeah. his brain is the best. I mean, he, he is presented as, as an incredible asset and his abilities is just what is he using them for? And that's kind of where we well, end up. Well, so the, the central season. question which you're getting at, I mean, like I will say that for me, the appeal of of spy stories, whether it's La Carre, whether it's Born, whether it's Homeland, whether you know whatever, is usually watching. To to paraphrase this Delillo line, I always think about with this is like the in, individual merging with history and like mm-hmm. watching someone who obviously, you know, it's very easy to sit here and you and I bullshit with each other all the time and like we're just looking at our computers and going about our daily lives and we're essentially spectators to history. But the idea that you could do something where even in some unseen, unheard, undocumented by design way, somehow shapes history, somehow is part of like the way the world works is pretty compelling to me. It's always, always, always a good story when someone is doing that to me. That's the feeling I get when I share chicken recipes with you. I mean, I want you to know that I I do feel my hand on the rudder of, of, of history in those moments because, you know, more people will be fed and eat well. Um, yeah, I, I get high off of that too. It's a total, it's a total thrill. And it's also just so deeply compelling to understand, to, to put a, a show about human beings trying to, uh, know things, trying mm-hmm. to be ahead of things, trying to combat uncertainty and constantly failing and trying again, you know, doing yeah. their best. And it, it just gets sloppier and sloppier. Messy things happen, accidents happen. And they try so hard and almost heroically, tragically sometimes, to impose order on it. You know, I, there are um, operations that that are ordered from the crisis rooms over the course of this show that go totally haywire, go totally sideways. But the professionals involved, whether it's for, you know, psychological reasons or just the way they were trained, always keep their heads, right? They keep their heads on a swivel and they're like, well, now we're doing this thing. There's yeah. always a plan B, C, D, and E. They just get increasingly gully, and it's kind of thrilling to watch, even as it is kind of tragic. We should, one last sort of bit of house cleaning. We're going to talk about each character, I'm sure, in depth and in the great performances. But you mentioned Don Draper and Mad Men. Maybe more than any of the other things we just talked about, it does feel kind of American to me that this show also, well, it's an ensemble show, et cetera, et cetera. It is a star vehicle. And... Matthew Kasovitz sets a tone on the show that is so assured and on some level so wild that mm-hmm. I could imagine it turning some people off early for all the reasons we were, you know, we were listing before. You know, it's not, there's no handholding. And not only is there no handholding, he is almost entirely unreadable. His face is a mask. And it was absolutely a choice. 
you know, this is an actor we've seen before, whether it's in Lahaine, a movie he directed, or he's in Amelie in a romantic role. From the minute you see him, his face is completely composed and rigid. And that's a decision. You just have the sense that he must have done research. He's talked to people. And then later in the second season, you know, when he's when he's uh, communicating to his new colleague, like that her face is giving too much away. And he basically, it's almost like the actor's, it, it's an actor performing another professional actor teaching someone how yeah. to be an actor. I mean, and that's, and, that's sort of the, and that's the, that the core of the first season is essentially, is this guy Guillaume? Is he Paul? Or is he Malatru, who is both? What does the DGSE want him to be? And who does he want to be? And what does he really want? Does he want Nadia or does he want just, is he just addicted to the game? Which is what Balmes thinks. I rewatched the pilot uh, recently and, you know, in, in now in the context of what's to come, it, it was striking. I didn't even really appreciate it as, as you're trying to take in all the information of a new show. The first thing we see this loyal agent do is lie. The mm-hmm. first thing he does is lie. The show basically begins when he begins lying to his handler. Yeah. In, in this case, it's the, it's the incredible Marie Jean whose hair journey on this show probably deserves its own podcast. Yeah. Well, okay. So you mentioned the hair and I, I was going to try and like pepper this out throughout the thing. But the one last thing, I mean, we can get into season one because we just mentioned Malatru's sort of triple identity or Paul Guillaume Malatru and these sort of mm-hmm. three different people he's playing. One is Nadia's lover. One is Prune's father. And one is this super agent. You know, one of the things I fucking love about this show is we're used to, I think, being taught character in these very recognizable landmarks. Like, here's where this person started. Here's something that happens to this person that changes them. And this is how this person ends up. How, where, whether, and, and I think the easiest way to think about this would be Walter White, right? Like, Walter White starts out as this sort of ineffectual but nice enough suburban dad, gets his cancer diagnosis, loses the plot, becomes a supervillain, and then eventually winds up saving his like sort of surrogate son, you know, to to mm-hmm. kind of redeem himself in some way. Mm-hmm. Sorry for spoiling Breaking Bad for everybody. Um, <laughs> in minute thirty of a incredible, incredible. I don't, I don't know what Paul's Paul. Paul doesn't have an arc. He feels like a person. Marie Jean, like mm-hmm. her transformation from, hey, I'm just. I'm just trying to learn how to do this job and I'm like trying to be a, a decent coworker and a decent person to, to do this job and to rise through the ranks. I need to like break some fucking eggs along the way and have sharp elbows and start saying what I want over the course of the season. But it's never like this like overnight thing or A, B was before and after. It's watching these people change over time like people change in real life and I think that the hair thing, I mean, it's a joke, but her hair changes over the course of, I'm in season three now. It's just like these subtle shifts of mm-hmm. who was she when we first met her versus who she is now. The dream of, I think, of any TV fan, or at least maybe, and, and I actually am curious, is this an old-fashioned TV fan? Maybe this is just our generation who grew up with a certain type of show. But the dream is for our TV friends to feel like people we know. So that when we that we are spend enough time with them, that the glimpses we get, the little windows when the windows open into their lives, accumulate into a, not just a complete picture of a person, but a complete love, adoration, and connection to made up people. And 
you can feel the flop sweat from shows that want you to do that early. And I and sometimes I don't blame them because the current TV landscape is if you don't hook them, you might lose them. This show, as we said before, it was not was not designed that way. If you had asked me after the first episode, which I watched and then we didn't go back to for a couple of weeks, uh, or after the second and third, or even after the you know fourth, would I one day be willing to take a bullet for the computer analyst whose name we don't even learn until mm-hmm. season three, <laughs> I, or, or that or that Henri Duflo who. Early, you know, after watching two episodes, I was referring to as French Billy Bob Thornton because I didn't remember his name or what he did, would become one of my all-time favorite TV characters. I would have said absolutely not. But it's so much better yeah, the way that it was done because I feel privileged to get these little scraps. And then when now when you get them, you realize that they do make a meal out of every little interaction because it adds up to something. It is a cumulative TV watch in a way only the great shows are. Speaking of rewatch, the pilot, it's all there. You know, it, it it sometimes can feel masochistic to watch a show that turned into something great and then go back and see from the beginning in hopes that they were laying the breadcrumbs because, let's be honest, it's really hard to do that. You can't, you know, things change along the way, let alone just the general messiness of, of artistic creation. They did on this show. Mm-hmm. Almost everything that the series becomes, at least through the three seasons Chris and I have watched, but definitely through the first two seasons that we're discussing— they planted those seeds in the first episode from the way uh, Henri respects but slightly fears Guillaume, from the way that that Guillaume is completely, as we were saying, completely composed and professional and smooth about absolutely everything to everyone to an extent that when he does break and he immediately is running a game ahead of everyone else. We understand who he is and what's going to happen to him if this isn't going to end up super well to, yeah, to the, to the supporting characters. The first time we meet the great, the great ladies, man, Raymond Cicerone. <laughs> what I think, a legend. I, I, I mean, truly the Bureau of, le- of one legend. So he, he of, is, I, we could get into Raymond. But, but, but I just want to say that we meet him by taking delivery of an ergonomic chair that's going to help his back that he yeah. immediately doesn't unwrap and then leaves unattended for an entire season, which, you know, it's the show in a nutshell that he's like, thank, this is going to help me and make me a better, healthier person. But I'm so consumed with knowing every little detail and maybe something I missed. I'm so mad at myself that I will just watch these Skypes of me and Cyclone for the next two weeks and never fix my back. <laughs> that's the show. That's the show. Let's do a little bit of season one here. So season one, uh, Andy just talked about the pilot a little bit. We're not going to go through episode by episode, but I can give you guys some broad strokes of how he and I both read this this season where you've got two sort of different framing devices that I think Rochant really uses to great effect. Now, I should mention that I believe Rochant wrote pretty much every episode, right? Yeah. And then can, he like co-directed the, 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 the lot of them. I'm not sure exactly. I don't know how, how they works. divide they, up responsibilities. There. They might be in a different system there. He is clearly, like all showrunners, kind of control freak uh, and responsible for everything. He is a writer director, so his his directorial touches seem to be on almost every episode. But as the show went on, he did bring in some collaborators into his writer's room, or at least into his process, and into the director's chair. And so mm-hmm. it, you end up with a lot of split credits. But I don't know if it's like a Matthew Weiner situation where he just put his name on stuff and rewrote, or if it was more collaborative. But he is he's all over it. Right. So there's essentially these two different framing devices that happen in season one. And in case you were just checking out the first 
30 minutes of this so that you could get a sense of what the Bureau was like. We're going to start talking about things that actually happen in these, uh, in these seasons. Um, you've got the framing device of this character. I don't know if you could call it a framing device as much as it is a mechanism for understanding the characters, but this woman, uh, Dr. Balmes, who is brought into the DGSE by Henri Duflo to help agents cope with PTSD, with some of the anxieties that go along with leading double lives or doing this kind of work. And also is being used by Duflo to find out information about the people working under him. Because I think in the beginning of this series, Henri, who kind of came to his job through some, not office shenanigans or like some political ambition, but winds up with the job. And the first thing he's basically told by his former boss is, you know, kind of like, good luck with this job. It's like you're basically in a snake pit, right? Mm -hmm. And he brings in Balmes who starts basically having these conversations with people. So it is a a very effective way for us to find out about people in a way that I don't know that we ordinarily would if there hadn't been a Balmes character. The other sort of framing device that we have that kind of emerges as the season goes on is Paul slash Guillaume is in some kind of interrogation room mm -hmm. talking to an unseen interrogator. or so We don't know the identity of the interrogator for much of the season and is talking in very French terms about the, the sort of nature of the kind of work he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, but we are at least aware that he does something that gets him in hot enough water that he is being given a polygraph. And, and speaking about his decisions and exploits almost in the past tense, like right. things had led him to a certain point. It's a great framing device. They do something similar and even more French in the second season where uh, Guillaume is just furiously journaling. journaling shirtless. It turns out to be a letter to his daughter, but he it seems like he's just like fucking deer diarying all over the place. For what it's worth, as a tribute to Guillaume, that is how I did my notes for this podcast. Uh, I, I, I opened a, a great bottle of, of Polyac wine as the same bottle that Duflo gives to uh, Guillaume early on, you know, and just, and just took the shirt off. And, you know, the ideas really, the ideas really came. They do float, if you will. I wanted to ask you, so over the course of, one of my favorite things is he, you know, Guillaume comes back from six years in Syria, correct? Yes, um, uh, undercover as a, t as a, a teacher. teacher named Paul Lefebvre. Where he's been working in Syria undercover, and he comes back, and they put him in this uh, DGSE-owned apartment in Paris. Yeah, let me tell you, the CIA... are does not have apartments that were owned by old painters. Yes. I just feel like there's certain things that are just chef's kiss. But do you find yourself curious about what these people do for fun or how how much money they have? Like there I feel like the one of the cool things about this show is that it strips the characters of a lot of like stuff that I think ordinarily we might find illustrative of personality. Like oh this guy really likes soccer or this person really loves jazz. It it, it's but, a great point that I think the show is interested in because for the for the main characters who are agents and in, and that's Guillaume and Marina, there's this idea presented like the, the, a scrim that they have real lives too that Guillaume exists he's not just Paul or Malatru yeah, yeah but that's a fiction that I think they've all agreed to buy into and increasingly that's the story of the first season as he becomes Paul staying in a hotel still with Nadia et cetera et cetera right but right but. You never see a moment where they're like, well, I want for this. I need this. Like everything about their lives on and off the job is supplied by the company, is curated by the company because there is no place anymore where one stops and one and one starts, which is- They all seem to work 24 hours a day. The, the only person, they all do work 24 hours a day. The only one whose home life we get a sense of is Henri. Mm -hmm. And he has a 
wildly young wife. Uh, it took midway through the first season. Maybe that's the most French thing about the show. It took midway through the first season for me to realize that that wasn't his daughter. Yeah. Uh, that this was his just like well, smoke they, show with the young French, wife. You can never tell when there's like the family kiss. You're just like wife or daughter, you know? No, like, you, we, we, yeah, we are all Jeffrey Jones and Ferris Bueller being like, that's, that's right. how it is in that family. Um, but we see him at home. We see him go home, I think, in the By pilot. the way, I was looking at like the... Uh, the IMDb's of some of the cast yeah. members and the woman who plays Marie Jeanne. I was like, I love this actress. I love yeah. this character. What else has she done? First thing I see is, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's essentially like a brother and sister who are in love and on the run for crimes. <laughs> and like the first shot is her just like naked smoking a cigarette and like her brother's in, naked in the bathtub. But I was just like, well, France, we hardly knew you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if you look up Jean-Pierre Derroussin, who plays Henri Duflo. Yeah, I'm like, he's, in, the, he's in this Mary Jean movie too. I'm like, he's the most interesting actor I've ever seen. His choices, he he, he physically just moves and speaks with such an interesting cadence, you know? And you look him up and he's just smiling in his pictures. And he's a, you know, he's a writer, director, and creative and poet who probably just thinks about stuff and every 10 years drops Marie-Jean is played by Florence Laurette Kai. They're just, they're all unique and incredible. But I, I guess the thing to say is that, and they make a big deal about it in the early episodes, especially when Balmay shows up, Duflo's character, like his personality, his free time, his interests, it's his ties. Yeah, fun like ties. everyone is like, it's such a tiny choice, but everyone acts like he's basically shows to, shows up at work nude because it's so bold in a life when everything else is either circumscribed or specifically designed to be a certain way, and what you present to the world is your job. I love the way the show teaches us about the world through well chosen moments. Yeah. So we Andy mentioned that we sort of join this this world in media res like the, a lot of this stuff is already in motion the first season essentially tracks three storylines it's the preparation of this uh new agent marina loazo who is being um trained to go undercover in iran they want her to and not get, just to go undercover to earn the right to go undercover it right is a so the, long, long, basically long the entire first season is her angling to get a job in tehran um, uh, as a seismologist, which I guess she is a say, seismologist in training. She mm-hmm. she is a seismologist. It's just that she's been recruited by the DGSE and is going undercover. So there's that plot line. There is the Guillaume Nadia plot line of this woman that, that as Paul, Guillaume met in Syria, uh, had an affair with. She was married, but he has an affair with her. And then he abruptly leaves. By the way, Marwan Al-Mansur is uh um what was norm's wife on cheers <laughs> that's right yeah that uh, vera or, or, vera it's vera the, yeah. marwan is the vera of the libero universe yeah he gets kind of x'd out pretty fast in terms of she's just like oh yeah i was married once um, we never see him what's I he know. up to <laughs> what, what if he's like the season five big bad he comes back i don't know don't don't tell me uh so there's the sort of paul nadia thing and she is being pressured by both the french and the Syrians, uh, she's sort of like, you know, really caught in between. There is an incredible character who's mostly in season one uh, named Nadim, who is uh, an agent for the Assad government, who is really running Nadia while she is in Syria and uh, in, in France, rather, because Nadia is participating in. Oh, God. No, I, she's participating in in. in- preliminary secret talks funded by the Russians as to what a post-Assad uh, Syria could look like. Right. And so everyone's keeping secrets from each other. I, I just got excited when we were talking about Nadim because one of the great things that can happen over the course of the show is when 
an agent encounters another agent. Because you have to imagine that these people, their whole job is secrecy. They're out in the world. They're suspicious of everyone, but they're also a little bit contemptuous of everyone who don't live the lives the way they do, who aren't aware of everything, who aren't looking over their shoulder, who can't sense things. And I'm reminded of, I don't know if you, you I know you've seen this, Chris, but if our listeners are aware of the story recently where some kids were playing basketball at a gym and Brian Scalabrini, white mamba, you know, the kind of like, punchline of a lot of NBA jokes, but was on a bunch of teams for a lot of years, was was training at the hoop next door. And these kids were like challenging him because he looked like a mark. Mm-hmm. And even though this guy who averaged three points a game for his career, you know, and, and was basically dunked on literally by people during his professional career, destroyed these children, sure. like post-retirement, like just didn't allow a point. And you realize that pros recognize pros. And if you've made it to the game, you've made it to the game. And so when the, the, we, in season one, when Nadim and Guillaume meet each other, it is like people who had been in the league, but they're at the rec gym pretending not to have been in the league. They want to escalate. There's this great whole thing where like Guillaume has to get, allow himself to be beaten up to create, to continue the fiction that he's just some struggling novelist. Yeah, and there's like, one of the fascinating things is, you know, obviously there's a lot of brutality in the second season, especially as ISIS becomes uh, a bigger part of the show. But, uh, you know, in the first season, it's a little bit more Lacari-esque where you're not quite sure the extent to which these agents are allowed to go. Like, it's not yeah. straight up like we're just going to assassinate people on the streets of Paris, but that's not not in play. You know what I mean? Like, there is definitely fear of physical harm. Um, but like in the same way that I think we've just seen recently with the expulsion of a bunch of diplomats from both the American and the Russian side in the last couple of weeks in the real world, there's a lot more, um, I, I guess you'd call it like sort of political and diplomatic pressure being applied rather than, and, and blackmail and, and, you know, like a lot of, of that kind of stuff, but not necessarily violence. Violence is looming over it. And, and Nadia certainly suffers violence from, from Nadim. And there's mm-hmm. the threat that Nadia's par- like family could be executed back mm-hmm. in Syria. But on the streets of Paris, at least, there, it's way more of a cat and mouse thing than it is John Wick. Yeah, they are not on the battlefield in season one. In season two, they begin to go there. And in season three, they some there. characters there are, there. are camped out there. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case yet. And so we don't know the full rules of engagement. And also, what's kind of thrilling about the first season is... We don't know, to, to quote to quote half the movies you guys cover in the rewatchables, we don't know how high this thing goes. <laughs> um, there's always someone else to call up the flagpole who can either fix it or absolutely sink it. And calling those people, calling them in is in itself a kind of game. It's really fun to, in keeping with this idea of falling in love with secondary characters, to... Uh, meet the hierarchy in real time where we see Guillaume and he's talking to Mary Jean. That's a power dynamic that's going to continue to to, to flip and evolve over the course of the series. Then we mm-hmm. meet Duflo, who's above Mary Jean. And what's he doing? He has to answer to Mag, who's a whole other character, Mon Colonel. And <laughs> a character who is kind of introduced, maybe this is my American TV brain, as being like, oh, well, this guy's this guy must suck. Like, this guy must be the corporate The suit, evil boss, you know, yeah. Who's going to shut things down. Over the course of the seasons, totally love him. Mm-hmm. Coming at it with his own points of view, his own loyalties, his own way of playing the game. But he is, and I again, on the rewatch, I realized this, introduced as someone who had his own code name because he was also in the field. Yes. So he's also playing the game. You know, as, as things escalate, we meet people like Marcel Gangouin, who's the guy with the ears. Yeah, the who's ops just guy. Running. He's yeah. the ops guy yeah. who's so intense and hates everyone but isn't going to lose. You know, there's a whole 
there, there, there's a whole world behind these figures as yeah. they move, these shadowy figures as they move. I think that's an interesting way because, you know, I've had the same feeling about Mag where I was just like, oh, this is, this is the dude who runs Treadstone or, you know what I yep. mean? Like this is Carrie's boss or something. It's not, it's not quite like that. And I would also say that like, just when you think you're about to run into, like when they go into the crisis suite, which you keep, you've referred to a couple of times, mm-hmm. and that's a term I think we've taken from Born Legacy or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of their, their mid-tier, mid-table kind of capabilities, it's six people at a conference table with like a semi-decent camera feed. Like, and some, and, and, a, and a, what seems to be a reliable Wi-Fi connection. Yeah, like it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, enemy of the state where they can just be like, zoom in on this guy's face. And let me hear what he's totally. talking about. And this is 2015. So we're way into the surveillance state. Like it's not, I think it's just whether or not it's limitations on the budget of the show or limitations on what the French government is capable of or allows themselves to do well, or whatever. You know, I think it's there. There are a lot of like sort of technological limitations. The, the guy who is essentially the Mr. Fix it in the office, Sylvain, I think, is basically Q from the Bond movies, but he's got like three computers and a soldering iron. Yeah, no, he, Chris, he basically works at the Metro PCS store. You know what I mean? Like he has some burner phones and he knows where your phone is and he knows yeah. when your phone turns on and yeah. that's it. He's also, I believe it's in the first season, uh, has one of, like there's certain moments when you're like, oh, I love the show. And there's the moment when he's telling Duflo, like here's how you can track everyone in the office's cell phones. And then he's just like, by the way, Every night I drive around the ring road once before I go home. Don't ask so you me know. any more questions about it. Yeah. And you and we don't really ever find out why. Every, yeah. No, everybody's just a little bit weird and a little bit off, and you kind of have to be. But to your point about the limitations of being the French Secret Service, it's kind of more fun to watch a group that has limitations. Because when yes. you watch the crisis suites in American movies, not only are they like zoom in, they're like, oh, take him out. And mm-hmm. they just like punch something in and it blows up. In this show, and as we see it in season one, when they actually do rescue Cyclone, they can't do it without the Americans. They need to coordinate a lot of different things and a lot of different people just to be in a position to do the shit that is just every day on an American uh, in an American crisis room, apparently, judging by our TV and movies. Right. Now, you reference Cyclone. That's the third sort of plot line that runs through the third season, which is the effort first to season. recover... First season. Which is an effort to recover this agent in Algeria named codename Cyclone. Now, we're talking about like the sort of technical limitations. This shows a version from maybe doing the sort of more militaristic side of things, although that that is an element of it. And it's amazing when you remove that stuff, for at least in the first season for the most part, when mm-hmm. you remove that stuff from the show, the stuff that sings. And so my favorite moment in the first season is this meeting that uh, Guillaume Paul and Raymond have with an Algerian general in yep, this apartment. And first of all, just staging blocking wise, like it's just brilliant. It's like this empty apartment. You've got this mysterious Algerian general that we don't really know much about. He's fucking awesome. Like he's just yeah. standing there wearing a tan trench coat and sunglasses in like a gray Paris day. And just as a pause to say, one of the great triumphs of the show, it's not just the location scouting and the production values that they bring to it all across Europe and the Middle East. It is the casting. Yes. The show has a seemingly limitless bench of awesome that guys and that gals to play these key parts. And it should be noted, many of whom are of Arabic or Middle Eastern descent, filling roles that in a less thoughtful production would be 
not worth their time. Mm-hmm. And these roles are always interesting, always surprising, and they are the actors they find deliver. So in this scene, we're essentially like this Algerian general is going to give them information that will lead them to to finding Cyclone. It, it, by the way, remember how they got the information was by bidding on on a scooter, yes. which was created by a which was which only exists because of a metaphor that Guillaume used after a six hours at a burlesque nightclub. It's an incredible like a guy. A, yeah, it's that that whole thing is just a, is my favorite part of the season. So they get to this apartment, and the general says to to Guillaume, like, "Yeah, I I, I can help you, but it's going to cost you this." In almost any other spy show, there would be either a separate episode or twenty minutes mm-hmm. of wrangling, or you know, we're not going to do this. We can't negotiate like this, or you know, to get you this, I need to now go steal a drive from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Guillaume makes a phone call and he's like, we agree. <laughs> yeah, there's no side quest. Yeah, it's not, we it's agree. not plot fodder. And then, so what happens is you are allowed to stay in that moment, in that apartment. There's no bullshit. And so what happens is this general then listens to a tape of his colleague bragging about killing that general's wife. Am I right? Or if you, I remember correctly? Decades before. Yes. Decades before. Something he'd always suspected, but now has had confirmed. It is such an incredible moment. And it's one of those things where I almost have to imagine that that the creators of the writer, the, Roshan, knows there is a story like this because mm-hmm. it's one of those things that I don't even know how you think of it. I don't even know how you would imagine something like this. This staging, this setting, this combination of characters. And it's just so brilliant. It, 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 it really well, is. If, you, if I was going to crystallize what makes this show special, it would be that scene. And I think it, it's it's what we would credit Roshant with having, and I think all the great uh, TV creators have it, which is there's in order to have like a North Star creatively, there have to be some emotional things that you know. And the thing that you know about this show is that though every character is a cog in the machines of nation states and ideologies, they are also human beings who at root are driven by their emotions. And they cannot control that. They cannot help that. That's who Raymond is. That's who Guillaume is. What's fascinating and not unique, but incredibly special about a show like this, or maybe it's just Rashawn in general, is that he knows the emotional motivation and he has the curiosity and the willingness to learn about specific TikToks of how things get done, but also maybe just just a really creative writer. So that's how you get a burlesque night and a scooter and you watching the, instead of watching a drone strike, you're watching the bidding go up on an item that doesn't even exist on French eBay. (laughs) all to get access to an agent who may or may not be about to be handed over to ISIS. Yes. I mean, the level of all the things that are going on, that maybe we should just say that, sing the show's praises for this. This show is so fucking complicated, but I'm never confused. I'm never, never. I There are occasionally sometimes where I'm like, wait, who does he work for again? Or is he working mm-hmm. for two people? But that's really it. Chris was referring to the runner that's going on during season one, where Guillaume is, is just speaking... <laughs> Is that deep, what you call a it, a runner f- rather than a framing device? Is that, is that yeah, the Yeah, a runner is that you keep, you keep coming back to it. Oh, okay. Um, and it runs throughout the season uh, where he's being interrogated or is hooked up to a lie detector test. As it turns out, well, you know what? Maybe the most French thing about the show is that they were in France and they were like, we need someone to play an American. Let's call an American. And they call fucking Buddy Garrity This is Friday Night Lights, Bradley also, Lind. Yeah, it's also like, it's 2015. So you have to go back to... International television, I don't think, was like a real primary focus of the American both viewer and actor at that time. So 
when they're looking around and they're saying like, who can we get as our, as our CIA agent reveal, you know, and they're going through, they're like Dennis Quaid, Dennis Quaid doesn't travel. Sam Elliott, yep. Sam Elliott's making the ranch, you know, like whatever they were doing. Yes. And then they're like, how about Buddy Garrity? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's incredible. It's also, and I say this with nothing but love for Buddy Garrity, one of the all-time great TV characters. It is emblematic of some of the decisions that are made in season one of a show that isn't yet established that they remedy. Yes. And, I, and, and it's fun that it's Buddy Garrity and he represents a certain type of American buffoonery, trying not to be a buffoon, that is important for the plot of the show and how the Americans are played, or portrayed in the global game. Mm-hmm. But maybe it played differently if English isn't your first language, uh, but he's not up to the level of the other actors. And, and that's something they remedy going forward. I wouldn't make any assumptions about Brad Leland, who I think is actually like charming throughout the series. It's just mm-hmm. that he is the dude who's airlifted into this, and I don't know that mm-hmm. he necessarily was like, I get it. I get everything that's happening here. You know what I mean? Like, it, It's true. And one of the best, I mean, first of all, what a, what a dream to be an actor just sitting in your house one day and being like, will you come to Paris to be on a prestige show a couple times? Like, yeah. Yes, we, yeah. oui, I believe even he could have said. Wait, the other thing yeah. is, a great credit to the show is that it exists in multiple languages. And obviously we're going to be harsher on the English speakers than we are on the, you know, the, I mean, literally any other language that's represented sure. on the show. But I love the facility with which many of the characters speak multiple languages. I think it's sort of true of the global moment that the show is trying to portray. It's very cool. I definitely talked about this when we briefly touched on Bureau before, but it can be very jarring to hear characters who exist in our heads a certain way jump the tracks. So like Marina, who uh, is is compelling and sometimes frustrating throughout the season, her shtick, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why she's such a good recruit is because she doesn't quote unquote look the part. You mm-hmm. know, she is willowy and diaphanous and is surprisingly strong in ways that we will be revealed over the course of the season. When she jumps to English, and Marina Loiso, her baby voice is so <laughs> off the chain. Similarly, that scene when Nadim and Paul encounter each other for the first time, and we've just been like locked in with Guillaume. I'm like, this guy just knows what's up, and he's always just talking about the nature of self and how we are all doubles. And then he's like, yes, I am a French teacher. <laughs> I'm like, Kasovitz, Yeah, he toughens up. He toughens up his English in future seasons. A little bit, but when he's question. in the car with Nadim... And they're like making their little deals. I think Nadim is just like dog. <laughs> Come on, you got it. He's like, I can speak whatever you'd like. And we yeah. can and we can work this out together. Um, let's, question. Let, so Garrity is sort of uh, Bradley Leland's character is sort of revealed at the end of season one. It turns out that uh, Balmez is working for the CIA. That that mm-hmm. they have sort of not. There's no entrapment because Paul really fucked himself here with like the way in which he decided to sort of um, run the Nadia relationship. Nadia gets compromised. She gets captured. Yep. And and basically, Paul sells out his own country to save his girlfriend. Right. So basically, he thinks that the only way to get Nadia back is to get the Americans to do it. To do that, he's going to have to offer the Americans something. Season two begins. We find out the thing that he's going to offer the Americans is Marina, who he had taken over her sort of running from Marie-Jean in a bit of office intrigue. She's not fucking happy about that. And by this point, all, all Marina, because of her relationship with Clement, by the way, who's on the Iran desk, who is another one of those like, okay, so he was there for this episode to be a foil. And then he's just around. Yeah. And right. that relationship is around. We never go home with them, but it's just always bubbling on some level. And it's fascinating and fun to watch. So season two is essentially Paul's double life being increasingly fraught. Nadia being, you know, uh, uh, being captured and her, her imprisonment. House arrest. And, and house arrest, although, yeah. 
Marina in Tehran and her, I mean, in fact, like I would say the first season Marina's plotline vaguely interested to me. The second season is when you're like, this show can do anything and go anywhere. I don't know yeah. where they shot the Tehran scenes, but it doesn't really matter because what happens is she immediately sort of, or not even immediately, but she slowly becomes part of uh, this sort of Iranian youth culture uh, exemplified by this guy, Shapur, who is the son of a high-ranking Iranian government official. And they have sort of, she's sort of buddies up with him. I, I think he's an energy He's an energy guy, right? Like he's not. I don't think he's. In, I don't think his father's in the government. I think he works he, for the energy department. I'm sorry. Yeah, but like he, his father is a person of interest for the French government and many governments. Let's just put it that way, including the Iranian government. Because what the show also does very well is is point out the. I mean, it helps when the plot lines about seismologists, but it points out the fault lines between yeah. the existing government and the government that might soon come. Or the yes. reality that's about to happen. And so there's this tension that does exist. I mean, you and I, Chris and I, while we are professional epidemiologists, we are not professional <laughs> experts on just the general Persian diaspora. That's but right. The tension between the global uh, political Iran and the religious state is very prevalent here. And the very fine line that even the most privileged children like Sharpur have to walk is brought to the fore. So if the first season is essentially about allegiance, the second season then becomes about like the lengths to which people will go to get what they want in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. you know? And so you have this, this Iran plotline, you have the Paul in Paris plotline, and then you've got this Raymond plotline. Now Raymond goes from a dude who's got pastry crumbs all over his nice V-neck sweater with an uh, ergonomic chair to being like a Lothario agent out in the field. Now, I don't know whether this is like Rochant saying, I'd like to change this character a little bit. I'd like to revamp mm -hmm. this guy a little bit. Or if there's just a significant shortage of field agents in that office and they're just like, hey, you guy listening to a podcast over there, do you want to go to Turkey? Like that, because that is basically what happens. It, it does seem, and you know, look, Chris, I've been either uh, freelance or kind of my own boss for a long time. So I'm not the guy to come to when it's time to talk about like office politics or office management. But I yeah. do feel like defining tasks is important. You look, and yeah, it, it, it is it is not dissimilar to you going from doing these wonderful podcasts that you do, right, to being flown to Spotify HQ to like make the business deals, like in a matter of Well, minutes. in Raymond's case, it feels like going from like doing the rewatchables to quarterbacking for the Eagles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. I don't and really also, know. They don't necessarily line up. Yeah. In season one, they're like, someone needs to go check out Cyclone's house in yeah. Algiers. No one knows him better than you, Raymond. Raymond's like, a moi? So he goes <laughs> and he shits the bed. Yes. Like in a, a number of, like Nearly he's gets there like for, multiple people killed, yeah. He is there for less than 12 hours before he is holding a nude woman at gunpoint. Yes. Okay, this is not what you're looking for in a stable employee. By next season, they're like, well, a high-ranking member of l'État islamique Desh or ISIS seems to be a French national, and my guy is fully beheading people on Vimeo or whatever. <laughs> Who can we get to combat this? And they're like, "Remember Please respect that guy? Vimeo, the 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 sort of platform of choice for many independent <laughs> filmmakers, including no, not including no. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Point being, the only guy to impersonate an attorney. Raymond is not an attorney. Nope. Is Raymond yeah. to entrap the brother and or sister of said uh, uh, Islamic radical 
and then accompany her to the combat zone. To the Turkish-Syrian border. I have a lot of faith in I believe in putting your playmakers in position to make plays. I just don't know that Raymond's a playmaker. I think Eric Rochant definitely disagrees with us because in the second season, or really in the first season, but in the second season especially, Raymond not only becomes Mm -hmm. an agent in the field, but one of the great lovers in the Western Hemisphere. Because here's the other thing. There are moments in the show where, you know, they know what they're doing. They're professional filmmakers where certain things happen, decisions are made where they know that the audience is going to be like, oh, oh no, oh, that's not going to work out well, right? And that's part of the fun of building the drama. One such moment occurs relatively earlier, at least midway through the first season, when the new recruit, Celine, who comes from this, basically, I would say she's a peer of Mrs. Duflo. Uh-huh. In, in age-wise, that. yeah. Age-wise, uh, she is apparently the French the French government's number one expert on Syria, despite being 27 years old. <laughs> and But I really enjoy Pauline Etienne. I think she's a great actress. I really love having her on the show. I love that she's not good at this, and it allows us to understand more about what being good at this means in her limited interactions with Guillaume. But before leaving for the Middle East, Raymond is basically just kicking game to her yes. on a Eddie Murphy and Boomerang level out of nowhere. And maybe this is like, more woke me. I'm like, oh, that's just poor. Like, where is the, where, how do you say HR in French? It works. My guy leaves the country, loses a limb. And then she's like, I was waiting for you and at least three of your limbs to return because you've, you've pitched woo to me successfully. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be flippant. No one has ever recovered faster from getting his foot cut off by ISIS than Raymond. Like in oh, terms, absolutely. It, it comes back in great humor and immediately mm-hmm. is like, the only thing that doesn't work is my foot, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> what he's saying is that his, his, his D works. You know what I mean? Yes. Like he, he's basically like explaining it's that just, some of his it, limbs it, are still but there. The, they, it, his transformation from a guy who's just wearing like kind of like, he's basically like the Dwight Schrute of the office in the beginning <laughs> of this show. And then in the mid, like by season three, he's wearing like leather bomber jackets oh. and hanging out in, it, with Curtis ladies. He does the Jim Halpert on a bad day to Jack Ryan transition <laughs> over the course of three episodes of television, not eight years of professional growth and bodybuilding. Yes. It's wild. We should say, so he goes, I love the way thrilling moments, like heart in throat thrilling moments, drop out of the show. Like you don't, see, they just drop out of the ether and suddenly you're in them. And one such moment is when you realize in the middle of the season, so they're running this con against, not con, they're running an, an operation against this um, ISIS commander and recruiting his sister is when you realize that the sister is in on it and the and the brother is in on it and they are entrapping Raymond, not knowing that he's DJSO, but they just know that he's They just want a French and lawyer. They're trapping yeah. And they're communicating through a, like fans of weird, dog fashion website. It's so obscure. It has to be based on some kind of reality. It turns typing into computers into the most thrilling thing you've ever seen. And it culminates in this moment when, well, it doesn't culminate. It just keeps building. This is when the show achieved a level of tension that I didn't know was capable of. It kind of jumps a level Mm -hmm. when the two mercenaries jump in the car with Raymond and the sister. We don't realize at the time that they are actually part of the operation. They are themselves terrifying. They demand Raymond's shoes. They give him their nasty boots with a tracker in them. A tracker which is then discovered by the brother when the reverse con is pulled or whatever you, however you phrase it, which results in the Islamic radical commander brother, French guy, pulling out a golden saber 
and removing Raymond's foot. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. But at the same time, they kind of just back put some ice on it and he's back up because, look, again, yes, epidemiologist, not a Persian diaspora expert, also not a body trauma surgeon. My understanding is when you take off an entire piece of the body, blood will come from that place, right? Yeah. Blood that you need in the they, rest they of your body. They just wrap that in a blanket and they're like, you're good Chris, to go. Chris, they literally <laughs> did what you said when I had a headache in 2003 at a bar. You were just like, throw a towel on it and move on. They wrapped him in a blanket. Yeah. It's incredible. The human body is incredible. I, I want to, you know, I, I, we don't have to dwell too much on season two. We've been going for a while, but I did want to talk a little bit about Shapur because I thought that mm-hmm. he was one of the most amazing creations of this show. Uh, you think you know what you're getting with him when you first meet him? He's this uh, brash, uh, kind of debased, you know, young Iranian mm-hmm. prince, not prince capital P, but like kind of acts like a, like a, you know, a Dauphin of Tehran where he just has ladies and they're throwing underground parties and doing drugs and stuff. And just obviously no, thinks he can get away with anything because of who his father is. And at once, you know what they, what these other Western governments want from Shapur is to be the new face of Iran. They want this guy who wants to bring Iran into closer contact with the wider world mm-hmm. and wants him to be a consumer. And they want them to be, you know, listening to music and doing drugs and wearing clothes and, and, and Instagram influencing. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, Shapur is not built for that. You know what I mean? He is not, he's clearly not like a, uh, a political leader of the future. Although you do wonder by the end of the season, if he is slowly getting there, you know, like Mm -hmm. slowly maturing, but his ultimate downfall is his carelessness and his recklessness. And, I thought that the way that they depicted him where for throughout most of the season, you're just kind of like, this guy's a liability. He's going to get Marina killed. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the season, you're just like, heart, you're heartbroken at what happens to him, which is essentially, I think we're supposed to assume he's, he's executed by the Iranian government. You know, it, it's just, un, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of writing across the board, his whole character. Well, also th- think about the fact that our entry into his character is Marina and her mission and everything that happens to her. And it doesn't go great for her there. Almost none of it has anything to do with h- how she does her job. She does her job f- well, but because of what's going on two levels above her that she's not even aware of, the power struggle between Mary-Jean and Guillaume and then the CIA's involvement. And then, you know, when Clement tries to turn him, he's already been turned and all of these different levels. Her presence there is kind of futile and tragic and doesn't end particularly well for her either, although she does make it out, right? And I love the way the show chooses sometimes, sometimes plans are executed brilliantly and we get to see each level of them. And I admire that so much because, you know, I've said this about other shows and I said this about when I was making a show, the hardest thing to do is make plans. Anytime, like we spent on Briar Patch like three weeks coming up with a a kidnapping plan and they're all just full of flaws and holes, partly Mm -hmm. because we don't work for a secret service, but also just, Plans are really hard and they're hard to make dramatic and compelling and logical and all the boxes you and have to And you explain tick. them without having a character walk into a room and be like, I'm going to explain everything. And, and yet, on the Bureau, they do it almost effortlessly. What we're yeah. talking about, the, the double recruitment where, where Raymond is recruiting the sister, but they're actually recruiting him. And then it's all done through a website and also cell phones that are hidden in the bathrooms of patients that the sister who's a nurse has to visit. I mean, they do the work to give us these compelling TikToks, but other times a main character just fucks up on his own like Sharpur 
and brings the whole house of cards down around him. And that happens off camera. And it, and it speaks to the happenstance of life. And that once again, no one can control anything despite their best efforts. I think, you know, the so the, the season sort of uh, builds towards and then concludes with, I, I guess, sacrifices in some way. I mean, like Paul obviously feels a degree of responsibility for the situation that everybody finds themselves in because he's been running this double life for the, both the CIA and the DGSE. So uh, once Raymond comes back, there is a plan set in motion unofficially, sort of off the books from, from MAG to uh, exact revenge on, on the, the ISIS executioner. who And who, also a piece of this is also national reputation. They mm-hmm. cannot abide by the person who's doing executions on video being a French national. Being a French they national. Need to, they need to eliminate this problem. The president of France is involved. We never see him, but he's telling them this as well. So they go and they find this imam in Libya, and through this imam, they hire a suicide bomber, who they then pair with a German journalist who has done stories on ISIS. Every time they introduce a thread, every time they introduce a character, you're like, is this a distraction? And then you're like, no, I would like to have an entire television show about this person. I think my favorite uh, Libero character archetype, uh, I mean... My favorite favorite, and every, this won't surprise anyone, we haven't even talked about them, is just the people who do the stuff. So yeah. like Grandma and Grandpa and Lemuel, who are just incredible characters in their own rights and just on the margins throughout and seem totally fine with that. But my other favorite archetype on the show is roguish neck scarf wearing dude who works with ISIS. Yeah. we There's a great example coming in season three. We won't burn it. But the journalist, like Chris, like. When you started out writing record reviews, do you think this guy was your destination? Like, was your goal to be that kind of international uh, rapscallion, you know, who who just takes, you know, drinks a lot of wine and gets money from shady means and knows people who knows people and drives out to experience the real thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, this this was definitely like, I never had like the the itch to do any kind of like deep field journalism i was like really fine <laughs> watching games and listening to records you, but you went to newport news to interview clips once i mean true. you were out in the field that's true i did and i, I had the, a great scarf for that night <laughs> good, um good. what what do you want to pull out of the second season before we let it go because i think we could also keep talking about the second season in relation to the third because i think they're very much united obviously yeah i think when we when we pick up the next episode of this of this deep watch we will be picking up threads that we've put down here but i think that again one of the things that was most impressive to me oh i like deep is, watch we should that's what we should call this Let's just copyright it. But but one of the things that I think is most impressive is the tension in television shows in the 21st century is the tension between the shock of the new, the we're just going to tell one story, leave everything out on the field, the, the, the creative freedom that can come with the finality of statements. Yes, yes. Um, and we see that in anthology shows, et cetera, et cetera, with the desire that many of us still have to fall in love with shows and to grow with them and to learn about the people and to spend more time with them and for everything essentially to be an office comedy on some level. The Bureau is one of the great success stories and balancing acts of 21st century television because it writes a very, very, very big check in season one, which is basically saying your main character is an unpredictable, untrustworthy rogue. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like it has a lot of runway before it either takes off or crashes. Somehow, and again, Chris and I have watched three seasons. We're only talking about two seasons. Rashan and his team have managed to keep that fresh, find more road that feels um, true to the character and the circumstances, but also creatively interesting and fresh. So we're still here. We're still in the office. We're still with these this crew. Guillaume is just 
making things worse. His his problems are are uh, metastasizing, and yet there's still further for him to go. And so his journey from like in the way they do it, so we don't feel manipulated. That they they know he's bad, but they they need him. And then he sacrifices himself and they still need him, yes. which creates this whole dynamic where they hate him, but they love him and they respect him and they honor well, that, him, but they want I, to murder him. And I think, you know, so obviously at the end of season two, Guillaume is taken hostage by ISIS. After after killing the the ISIS executioner, he is, you know, he Do you sets think this, our appreciation of the Queen's Gambit would have been different if we had seen an explosive device I think so. hidden in a chess clock the way and we I, did And here? I think Scott Frank needs to, to basically take that and, and take it as a note, you know? Answer but, for this. Um, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about this is that the relationships in, the inter sort of personal relationships between the people who work in the DGSE are ambiguous in terms of like how sentimental they are, how romantic they are at times, whether or not those romantic relationships are like lifelong or whether they're just office flings. But the relationship specifically between Henri, his protege, Marie-Jean, who I think is at various points sort of flitting between whether she's more of a Guillaume or more of a Duflo. Is she more of a bureaucrat who's going to kind of see the entire chessboard or is she um, a real hands-on field agent you know, type of person. That triangle is really fascinating to me because I don't think that it has a lot of cliches to it. I sometimes I think Marie Jean actively dislikes Paul and Guillaume. Oh, I mean, she does, but she obviously feels some sort of sense of responsibility or allegiance to him. And Henri feels the same way. I mean, I think Henri often is is like this guy was sent here to destroy my career, and I'm going to stop that from happening. But at the same time, I recognize that he gets certain things done that no one else can do. I love to it. You don't need to have the full plan. I mean, this was what Lost got pilloried for. You don't need to have the answers when you start asking questions at the beginning of a show. That said, go back and watch the the pilot of Le Bureau and you see that our first impression of Mary, the first conversation is Marie-Jean and Guillaume. And Guillaume is lying to her and she's looking out for him and he's lying to her. We see them meet in person for the first time. And they're like, this is awkward. Yeah. And they don't know what to do with each other. Yeah. And everything that the relationship becomes is in that moment. It's it, it's pretty exciting. I mean, maybe the best way to end this conversation now, I do want to note that I did, we did not really leave room for the conversation I wanted to have, which is the commissary in the DJ. So maybe oh we'll God. save that. Um, but I just Well, they, I mean, like, look, you, they make time for lunch in France. And, you know, as a, dude, as, a as an American drone like office drone, not not military yeah. drone. As an American office drone who has been shoveling salads into his maw in front of a computer for the last 10 years, the idea of having a luxurious steak frites with my boy in a commissary? It, let's go. I'm ready, it's, man. It's I, not I, just, I got the vaccine. Let's do it. It's not just <laughs> Malatru the carnivore that emerges over the course of the season. It's that everyone, no matter your level of employment, no matter your level of stress, you fucking leave your desk, you go down to the cafeteria, and you help yourself to a multi-course meal that generally features a giant bowl of shredded carrots, half of an entire fucking pineapple. What's up with or, the carrots? And Who eats shredded carrots like that? They love a bowl of carrots, but they also, all of them, on your, no matter on who On your they own are, life, have you ever had a bowl of shredded carrots? There have been situations in my life, Chris, I'm going to be honest with you. There have been situations in my life where there has been a, when I was younger, and I was at a place where dinner involved an all-you-can-eat trip to the salad bar. Maybe it's a sizzler-type situation. Yeah. And as a child, 
I loved, I knew what I loved and I knew what I, what I hated. What I loved was free choose your own adventure meal experiences and buffets. What I disliked was generally all salads and vegetables, not carrots, not carrots. So eight-year-old me, if it was take your sickly son to work the DJSA day, I would have done it. But yeah. they're adults. Not only are they adults, Chris, and not only are they eating an entire steak and plate of french fries at lunch, all of them, all of them take an entire bread roll. Oh, yeah. Because it's France. There's one scene where Marie-Jean has some kind of like entree plate. Yeah. A bowl of carrots. I think a bowl of rice Mm -hmm. and a giant pastry, like a giant bread roll. Like it is it is the starchiest, healthiest meal I've ever seen. And she's eating with Mag, who has just microwaved some trout. Yeah, he was just like, this fish is not at the correct temperature. I will pause our conversation with global stakes to warm it. An incredible moment. But also now we understand why in every other scene in the office, when anyone enters an office or sits down at a computer, they're like, would you like a coffee? And they're always like, wait. The reason they're like, we is because they're all in fucking carb comas from their lunch and a half 45 minutes ago. Last thing to say as we wrap up this first part of our conversation just want to stress to people, and I imagine if you're listening this far, you agree with us, what total joy it is to fall in love with a TV show again, yeah. and particularly a TV show like this. Chris and I have been totally obsessed, mostly at the same speed, give or take an episode or two, for the last few weeks. I think both of us are quivering with excitement that for both of us, there are two more entire seasons to watch, but also that feeling of delicious dread that there are only two more seasons to it's, watch. It's been a, a constant negotiation in my household about like wh- how much Bureau we are allowing ourselves to watch because we, we we love it so much. It literally, like for the last three weeks or month or so, it's like, it's old school, baby. It's like we get our episode of Bureau, the Bureau tonight. It is, it is so, and then we get to the end and we like, we, we you know, exclaim out and we're like, ah, I want to watch another one. And it's like, no, I want to make this last. Last question, Chris. Not every episode ends with the same music, but many do. There's many of the episodes, a high percentage ends with a cut to black and then the beginning of a song that I swear to God, every time we play an episode through, I am convinced it is some flamenco cover of the killer's song, Human. I swear to God, the woman is just like, are we human? I'm like, why are you? (laughs) Frankly, I wouldn't be mad at it. I'm intrigued. It also seems extremely Canal Plus. But I guess I'm by judging by your face that our listeners can't see that you are not experiencing. That I don't the same think way I, I, I think I only ever noticed the like, mm, like the low key synth yeah. tones of the music. I don't ever notice the, the closing song. That's because your jaw's on the floor. That's right. That's At the right. end of every episode. Andy, this, this was episode. a lot of fun. Uh, so we're going to come back. Well, I guess we're airing this. Well, we have to figure out when we're going to air it. We're going to do this. We'll wait maybe a week or two and then do three and four. We'll wait yep. a week or two and do five. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, we can we can maybe get a guest. I don't I don't know if if Kasovitz wants to come rap with your boys, but uh, this is not, a lot not of after fun. I made fun of his English accent. So yeah, thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you to our producer Kaya, our producer on every episode of The Watch, pretty much. Kaya, have you ever missed an episode you never sick at sea? It's just one of the most amazing things about you. No days off for me. That's right. Uh, just Kaya's like you our work producer. Yes, in French and- Secret Service. And Chris, <laughs> what you mean to say to everyone is merci, merci beaucoup. We'll see you guys soon. C'est formidable.